right, so on today's episode, we are doing a follow-up to our borderline personality disorder, and we are joined by my friend, Galaxy, who is co- co-host, I don't know how you say it, but like one of the two people behind the Instagram residents protecting residents, also known as RPR, and she... <laughs> Not VDRL. <laughs> and, and she's been open with me about having been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and like going through treatment for that. And I thought, you know, in the borderline episode that we did, we mostly did the perspective of like being an outsider and being, you know, the person perhaps in some sort of relationship that's not necessarily the best. And it, and so that gives a very, like, one-sided perspective of borderline personality disorder. So I thought it was really important that, number one, we get someone who has been diagnosed, but number two, even more importantly, has gotten treatment and is more of, like, a success story instead of, like, a the people we were talking about on the episode mostly are people who totally, like lack insight, have maybe other things going on as well, and there's not very much hope for that category of someone who has the diagnosis. So I really wanted to get someone else on, and I'm so thankful that you've come on. So if you want to tell us as much as you want to tell about like what's going on with you presently and like a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so... um... (laughs) Woo. So I talk about this all the time. Um, I'm a big uh, advocate for mental health. People who know me outside of RPR uh, pretty much know that I have struggled with mental illness and probably do know that I have borderline personality disorder. I am a big advocate for rehabilitation of those with borderline personality disorder. It is probably the least treatment refractory of all the personality disorders. But it does take a lot of buying in by the person Mm -hmm. who has borderline, right? So, um, and that, like most people's issues, because personality disorders are very egocentric, right? So that was kind of my thing was the buying in. But we'll get to that later (laughs) about how we finally got there, (laughs) how we finally finally got to the buy-in. Um, just a little bit about myself present day. Um, I'm a internal medicine pediatrics resident at this point in my life. Very excited about that. Finally found my happy career path. Um, uh, you know, as our hosts know, I know about me, been radicalized by the system a little bit, hence starting RPR with one of my closest friends that also had a lot of struggles in residency. And I'd say, uh, I already know what my job's going to be. I've already signed a contract, so I'm probably, I'm primarily going to be a primary care physician. I do a lot of mental health and a lot of complex disease management that has psychiatric illness as part of it. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Um, you guys have any questions? Well, know. you know, Was the reason helpful? why I didn't Should like I prompt about? you with questions is I really <laughs> wanted you to share as much as you were comfortable with about what's what you're obviously I know about your life right now, but I wanted to leave it <laughs> open for well, you to yeah. share as as much as you wanted to about that because as everyone listening can understand, this is a super stigmatized diagnosis. And although you might uh, be brave enough to be open in 
real life, there can unfortunately be like consequences about being completely open with the entire world about this type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, if you guys follow Residents Protecting Residents at all, if you've seen the page, obviously we get into a lot of issues about stigma and, uh, you know, civil rights of residents that uh, are unfortunately Mm -hmm. this time not protected. You know, we'll see, you'll see a lot that we talk about Black Lives Matter, uh, mental health, um, all sorts of topics, ACGME violations, a lack of protection for residents in the workplace, especially if you're not located in a state that can have Mm -hmm. a union, like say CIR, SEIU, so, but yeah, mental health really ties into that. And I think on this journey for me personally, having pre-existing mental illness going into uh, medical education, um, that was probably my first step along the way of realizing, hey, something's not quite right here yeah. with medical education. Something, Something's not, not quite right with how um, people like me are perceived. And since we know that studies have proven that um, medical uh, three quarters, I think it's a half to three quarters of medical students and residents who did not yes. have pre-existing mental health conditions. So yes. excluding people like me, uh, the system, by the time they graduate residency, they will have depression or generalized anxiety or some sort of social anxiety. They will develop a mental illness. So um it's really crazy to think having a pre-existing mental illness, multiple in my case, is going to automatically get you stigma in the medical community entering medical school. Um, when it's so not cool. Yeah. When it's a system cool. that ends up making people <laughs> mentally ill. And, you know, I think we'll get back to this topic towards the end. But one thing that I hate is this complete misconception that is completely not factual, that the type of people who go into medicine are like more on like the OCD spectrum. And so they come in and they're prone to mental illness. And that's why their suicide rates are so high, et cetera, et cetera. It's absolute bullshit. It's not true. And it's another way to victim blame, to be honest. So that's why me and Galaxy bonded because, you know, we both really have a passion for wanting the medical system to really change and recognizing that presently it can be very toxic and fully abusive in many circumstances. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, again, if if you, if you follow our page or if you <laughs> literally followed anything um, that our hosts post, I mean, it's very clear uh, we hear people talk about malignant residencies versus, uh, you know, good residencies, malignant medical schools versus good medical schools. At the end of the day, it is our sole belief at RPR, and I think the hosts agree, correct me if I'm wrong, you, know, <laughs> yeah. you can tell me if that's not true, <laughs> um, that unfortunately it's an abusive system. So even a good residency, a good medical school. Yes, right. It's still it just means there's less by, of it. Or it's, yes, right. Not reported. There's less much. by virtue of being in the system. Yeah, not not reported. But I think a lot of people um, are taught to buy in that, like, this is just the way that it is. This is how it has to be. We've always done it this way. 
there's nothing abusive like this. This is just a rite of passage. I'm sorry. The whole process is very similar to hazing. Just no one really picks up on it because they're like, well, everyone told me it has to be this way. And it's like, girl, I got some news for you. The ACGME yeah. is not mm. protecting your ass. They're not doing anything for you. The, L- the LCME, mm-mm. They do not care about your civil rights violations mm-hmm. as a student. Mm-hmm. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> and I think... We'll have to get back to this towards the end because I think probably one of the ways, and we can talk about this then, that you cope with everything is through taking taking this action. Like it's, and I don't want to get into it too much right now yes. because that's a deep dive on its own. So <laughs> I, oh, I have talked to you enough to know that you have a pretty insane life story, and that's probably putting it really nicely. Uh, so, uh, do you want to share like a little bit about your life? Because I think it's really important, number one, to know, and it's really honestly inspirational that you've been able to overcome so much. And it also explains a lot about like, you know, probably why you developed borderline personality disorder. Yeah, so let's just like, hey, my name is Galaxy. I don't do idle chit chat. I'm really bad at small talk. Here is all my deepest, darkest childhood trauma finger guns. Um, But no, I mean, honestly, if we're just going to talk starting globally, and then I'll I'll get to my story. What y'all have to know is that you, you know, 99 times out of 100, do not develop borderline personality disorder in a vacuum and have a quote happy childhood yeah. or a normal childhood or I, I don't even like to use what's the word normal, normal because how, how many people have in this world anymore but um so usually and you guys would know better than me because well psychiatrists neurologists but um you have to have genetics uh, predisposition in a certain number of known personality traits probably as a kid which I did and then you just get totally brutalized and get the just a psychological shit beat out of you so Mm -hmm. you know where this is going so me as a kid um wow it's a little bit harder to talk about at least my childhood but I grew up I was uh, mm-hmm. a mistake. <laughs> um, my mom had me at 29. My dad was 53. And my mom already had known pretty significant multiple sclerosis at the time that I was born. Now, uh, going way back into the late 1980s, early 90s, there was no treatment for multiple sclerosis. Um, as you guys who are or in the medical field, you may know that there are multiple different types. My mom had the worst type. She had primary progressive. Were you her first child or second and child? Sorry. I was her first okay. child and her only child. Um, my dad had two kids from previous marriage. Fun fact, my mom and dad were married when they met and cheated on both of their spouses and then got married after that. So total yeah. set up for failure. Thumbs up. Um, and... As you may imagine, my mom's condition declined. Um, There's probably a reason why someone as young as her uh, ended up being married to someone as old as my father. We won't go there. My father was an alcoholic. My mom was completely hospital bed bound by the time I was seven with a tracheostomy, a chronic Foley, and a G-tube or a peg tube. 
Um, and my dad worked 80 hours a week because back in the day, in the 1990s, your insurance could just kick you off, which they did. My mom le- reached her lifetime yeah. max, and they didn't pay for anything anymore, including her hospital. It's not much stay. better. So <laughs> while I'm... It's really, I mean, it's really not That's much terrible. better, um, but it, it is terrible. At least they can't do that now. I do remember, like, the last couple times my mom was hospitalized in the ICU, like, my dad lost his life savings. So he was a college professor and a lawyer, worked for himself. Um, as far as lawyers go, didn't make a whole lot of money because he spent most of his time being a college professor. But, I mean, he was still six figures, like, low, low six figures, but we didn't live like it. Like, it, our house was squalor because... He had to work and take cases and murder trials on top of a full class load to pay for her medical bills. I think just one of her hospitalizations was $800,000. Holy fuck. Just one out of like, yeah. So, I mean, we couldn't, uh, our house got struck by lightning. We couldn't fix the roof for several months. Um, It ruined our dishwasher. We didn't have a dishwasher or garbage disposal for a really long time. Like, my dad paid out of pocket for her hospital bed, and it was like a striker air bed. Like, all of this stuff, all this medical equipment fully supplies everything out of pocket on top of being an alcoholic. What I will, and working 80 hours a week. So what I will say is uh, my dad provided my mom really good care physically as like turning into a nurse. Emotionally, obviously, he was very stunted. Um, it was made known that I was not wanted um, that I was, like, a huge inconvenience on him trying to, like, have a life and take care of his wife, um, because I was a kid, and, you know, (laughs) being a pediatrician, like, kids are little grimy dirtbags that have, like, all these things that make adults sick, couldn't really be around her, because she was immunocompromised, um, and, you know, just, like, really gnarly, bad parental behavior like physical abuse um sexualizing me as a kid not that I technically had sexual abuse but my dad sexually harassed me all the time um and it just you know basically my dad made it clear that I wasn't going to amount to anything and he wasn't going to pay for my college and that if I wanted to not live at home and go to the community college that he worked at I would have to get a full ride So I remember my mom's nurse, who was like my mom's best friend from the age of seven. She started a countdown with me um, of how many years I had left in my dad's house. We started at 10 because I graduated high school when I was uh, at 17. And by the time my mom died, I had gotten to eight years left. I, uh, I played golf. I practiced all the time. I never saw my friends in the summer because I was determined I was going to get that full ride. I was going to get out of that house. Um, Child Protective Services was a part of my life um, because my dad was white middle class. I'm pretty sure that went uh, against them taking me out of the home, if you see what Mm -hmm. I'm kind of saying. Like, oh, privileged privileged white family. Like... My dad would lie and say, like, he didn't take the cans back or the bottles back for several months because he was working so much. Mm -mm. Mm Mm-mm. Two 30-packs a week Mm -hmm. plus liquor. So uh, all of this stuff. So um, when I was 16, I was taken out of the home, finally. 
my best friend's mom, who I now call mom, and she officially adopted me, went through the steps to be a foster parent so that I could, A, still see my dad and still go to my same high school. And she only lived mm-hmm. two miles from my dad. So, um, so going through all of that, going through high school, um, playing – uh, you know, na- national level golf, and then just getting a full ride. My dad made it very clear he wouldn't co-sign my loans, so I didn't take any loans. Basically, just lived off what they had at college, what food they had, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, I really thought when I got to college, after getting through all of that, I would be mm-hmm. okay. I'd be fine. Uh, the, all the depression you know, would go away because I was free. You know, you don't know when you're 17. Um, it didn't. It didn't. And I didn't know. I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I, um, it was just so hard to put my finger on because I really was enjoying life. I really was, um, juggling everything. I was a starter on the golf team. I traveled to every single tournament in all four years. I did research. I was pre-med. Um, you know, I was, I was on Habitat for Humanity with my roommate and best friend who was the president and doing events and organizing community service to the best of my ability. Although I think she would say I could have done a little bit of a better job, but I was balancing all of this and yet I developed panic attacks and um overeating um got myself into a super abusive relationship that was physically abusive just like uh patterned after my relationship with my dad um uh, I turned into an alcoholic high functioning alcoholic that still got all A's and functioned on the golf team and went to nationals on the golf team and still did my research and still did all of this. And I'm how I I still couldn't figure it out. So I was drowning all that depression and anxiety and alcohol. And I'm like, I'm doing just fine. I'm doing so much better. I have amounted to something. I have gotten to the peak. And then I... Uh, finally, after just so many on and off, broke it off with my abusive um, ex-boyfriend, and I met my now husband. In I shouldn't say met; I knew him. <laughs> we hated each other, but then my <laughs> we hated each other when we met. Um, but my uh, roommate, who's my best friend still, and. Sh- she also went through a lot of stuff too and became a very successful large animal veterinarian. Super proud of her. Um, so she was dating Philip's roommate and he, she hated Philip's girlfriend. So her plan was to get rid of that girlfriend and replace her with me so we could just be a very happy family in the apartment. And uh, we met for the first time and Phil hated me on site, like, hated me on site. Uh, somehow she really worked on him and changed his mind and changed my mind. She was determined. And, uh, I was my really God. trying to get over. <laughs> she, she was freaking determined. I mean, we, we did, we, 
aside, we did call Kinsey his ex-girlfriend. <laughs> she, she did deserve it, though. She was so incredibly mean. She was such a not nice person. Very narcissistic. Unredeeming narcissist, at least in my mind at the time. Hand-waving. I may not have been the greatest person at the time either. We're, I don't know. Uh, Phil does, though. He told me I was a <laughs> dumpster fire. But <laughs> his words, not mine. Um, and so I ended up really liking him, and I still hooked on my ex, and he ended up being the one-night stand that never went away. Ten years later, we're still married. Um, <laughs> so... Anyway, my ex starts stalking me, and Philip, wonderful guy, had a very uh, stable childhood, generally happy parents. His mom maybe has one, <laughs> we're still trying to work that out. But I mean, just lovely, lovely, lovely people, lovely family. And I just, uh, I just remember one day he was like, I really. I really don't think this is depression. Um, I really, I really don't think this is depression. And you know, by that point, I had life storied him, and he knew everything. Um, you know that I told you guys, and probably even worse, excruciating detail. But I was like, no, no, it's just depression. I'm going to the college therapist or whatever. I would also like your guys' opinion on college <laughs> therapists, like those free psychology clinics through college. I think they're kind of bogus. Well, so I mean, I personally. have... Go ahead, Allie. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I... <laughs> so I have... I, In my experience with patients of that age, a lot of times it's... You're just saying what their parents have been saying You're as the... As, you know, whatever role you play. And they'll listen to you and, you know, I... It's very, it's, it's odd, especially if the parents are still very much involved once they're still, in, they're adults in college, but essentially you're not telling them anything they haven't heard before. They're just hearing it from a different person, I think. That's my take on it. Yeah, and I, I kind of feel the same way, except in my, uh, at least... What she was saying was not very much different from what my now husband was saying, but it was like all novel and news to me because my dad had never said a single supportive thing to me in my life. So, um, and I actually, I should rewind, I attempted suicide in college um, by drinking bleach. Mm -hmm. Don't recommend it. Don't do it. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it. Somehow talked my way out of a hospitalization, went home took my physics test, felt like crap forever. Um, don't do it. So my don't question is, at this time, um, were you only seeing a, the college counselor? Were you not on any medication or anything? Okay. No. No medications. Actually, to be frank, um, if we, like, rewind a little bit, the only time as a kid that I ever saw a physician was to get my sports physicals okay. to participate in golf. Um, just to, like, give you an idea of, like, how utterly unsupportive and abusive my dad was it wasn't just lack of support like one I had started cutting as a kid um as a lot of kids who can't handle their emotions and what their feeling will feelings will do um and obviously that's common to borderline self-harm and parasuicidal behaviors 
Um, and the doctor at the sports physical obviously figured it out because they put me in the gown. Um, really just asked me what happened, and I said I did it myself. Said nothing other than that. Didn't tell me he was telling my dad. <laughs> Told my dad. My dad said nothing in the car the entire way, so I knew he must know because he wasn't acting like his normal sober self. He was brooding. Um, went on a bender, called me in front of him, and basically said to me, you know, if you just want to die, that's okay. Oh He's God. like, just kill yourself. I don't need you. I don't need you. And you really make my life harder, not easier. He's like, it's actually really embarrassing that you're cutting yourself. So if you just want to die, wow. just die. And he was like, and then he told me to get out of his sight. And that was the last we ever discussed about it. And I continued to cut through college. Um, girls what, that I would play golf against me would ask me about it. And I would just be like, nah, mm -hmm. it's nothing. I mean, everyone knew. Everyone knew. I mean, everyone knew. They could see it all over my body. Like, everyone knew, but mm -hmm. no one would say anything. You know, they'd just be like, because they always were like, we love playing golf with her because she's so supportive. Like, even if someone was really mean to me on the golf course, I would always say, like, great shot. You're doing so good. Don't be so down on yourself. So everyone, like, didn't understand why. They didn't make sense. So moving forward, met my husband, all this stuff. Didn't go to psychiatrists. To be honest, at that point, I didn't really, I don't even think I really understood that psychiatrists yeah. could help me. Um, because I really thought it was only for people mm -hmm. with psychotic disorders. I think at that time, when I was like 18, 19, so 20. So you, going to, towards your symptoms, you know, obviously the chronic suicidality, which is like one thing, and then the self-harm, which is another thing. Um, you know, you've hinted at a lot of other things. What symptoms of borderline were <laughs> present in your life at that point? Um, Y'all know the yes. criteria for borderline, <laughs> backwards and forwards. So okay. I met all of them, every, every single one of them. I was impulsive, thankfully not sexually, <laughs> knock on wood. No gifts that keep on giving for me. Um, but like... I had so little money that, like, if I got my hands on any money, you would have thought that I, like, would have saved it or done, I don't know. But I was very, like, spendy. If I got any money at all, I'd go immediately to Maurice's and buy clothes. Don't, I don't know. Don't ask me. Um, uh, I obviously continued self-harming. I had the the one that every medical student knows, mm -hmm. fear of abandonment. Yeah. That's probably why I was back and forth with my uh, ex-boyfriend ex so many times. I mean, it started out with him being physically abusive to me, but I became physically abusive mm -hmm. to him as well. Um, it Very, very casually, I was a complete mess. I functioned at such a high level in my classes and on the golf course and then if you would see, like, me doing anything else outside of my extracurriculars in college, it was like, what are you doing? You are, like, unstable. Mm -hmm. Not stable at all. So 
again, my husband back then picked up at you picked up even on it then. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I don't want to be like my dad. I'm going to stop drinking uh, until I can like uh, have this under control. And so I did. And that at that time was enough to appease him. Because he was like, okay, cool. You're not an alcoholic. You're not drinking. Perfect. You're not drinking. You're not partying. You have one beer when you do party with your roommate. Like, hey, this is good. I'm really proud of you. And he's like, at that point, like, yeah, this is, you're doing better. I mean, and he really was like, okay, the cutting occasionally, this and that. But you're so functional. Seems like we got a handle on things. Um, right after college, he proposed to me, um, and I remember that being the second best day of my life, uh, June 23rd of 2012, and then in August, I started medical school, and I, you know how no one really tells you no, what no medical one does. gonna be like? <laughs> No one tells you. And I heard, like, oh, it's really hard. And I'm like, I'm so well-rounded. I do all these things. Like, I was busy all the time. I was getting up at 5 for conditioning and going to bed at midnight to study. And I'd play 36 holes and stay up till 1 in the morning to study for my physics test and then play golf again. Like, I got this. No problem. Slam dunk. I got this. Oh, man, did I not got this. I did not have this. It was, it was not good. It got ugly really, really quickly. So you guys are, like, aware of the borderline mm-hmm. spiral. Anyone li- listening to this, you might not know what the borderline spiral is. But um, borderlines, including myself back then, uh, will find, like, something very small about what's either going on, about feeling slighted, something that they feel should be completely controlled that's probably not completely controllable and they get irrationally angry it does not make sense to anyone other than the person with borderline and even after the fact it then doesn't make sense to them either um they get irrationally angry they lash out they The people that they've put on pedestals, I'm sure you guys have heard about that, um, which in this case would be my husband, um, they just go bonkers on them. And verbally abusive, sometimes physically abusive. I'll be completely honest, I was pretty physically abusive towards Philip in the beginning, especially at the beginning of medical school. Then they get sad because they've hurt the person that they love. And then generally they get suicidal because then they're like, I'm such a horrible person. I deserve to die. And then they will, at least in my case, sleep it off. And then they'll wake up and they'll be completely fine. Meanwhile, the person they completely devalued and abused is still in shell shock. They're like, how are you fine after that? How are you okay? I'm not okay. I'm still angry about what you did. And I'm like, well, we already said sorry. It's okay. And... So it got really, really bad to the point where it was happening every single day to Phil. Uh, My spirals. Because he was the only person I consistently saw on a daily basis in the beginning of medical school. And I was killing myself trying to get honors. And it just felt so unattainable to the point where in the third month of medical school, he's like, you're either getting help or we're not together anymore. He's like, like I said in college, this is not depression. This is not anxiety. 
this isn't just panic attacks. There's something seriously mm-hmm. wrong. People with depression don't act like this. He's like, people with panic attacks don't act like this. He's like, they panic. They don't go on a rampage and throw vases through windows and slam doors mm-hmm. and slap me. They don't, they don't do that. He's like, so you're either going to get help or I'm going to leave. And I really resisted. I did not want to buy in. I didn't, I knew something was wrong, but I was like, it's just depression. I don't, I don't want to be on medication. I don't want to rely on something to quote, make me happy. Why does something have to be wrong with me? Uh, But in that moment, because (laughs) of fear of abandonment, I was like, oh yeah, I'll get help. Sure. I'll go through the motions. I will get help and you will not leave me and everything will be fine. Um, so I did my intake, uh, with, um, the psychology clinic, uh, at my institution that I was going to medical school and they had a very, very strong, one of the top still psychology programs, like PsyDs Mm -hmm. in the country, clinical psychology. Um, so unbeknownst to me at the time, I was actually matched up with, uh, one of their, soon-to-be grads that specialized in personality disorders. Um, Can we just say that's amazing? Which I found out like, way after that. <sighs> yeah, I know. Like, they heard all the symptoms. The intake coordinator heard all the symptoms and was like, who is also a clinical psychologist, um, and was like, red flag, red flag, red flag, But this flag, is an example flag, of, flag. like, the system actually <laughs> and was, working. And unfortunately, you know, often it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen. No, um, I got exceptionally lucky with this. Um, so I got matched up with her. She met with me. I would always go on my lunch break. And uh, I remember my first visit. It was like a blur. She, you know, when you, you guys do intakes, mm-hmm. it's like 8 billion questions. And um, the second visit, I remember uh, she told me, she's like, so I have good news and bad news. And I'm like, okay. She's like, um, you know, the good news is, is I have an answer for you as to why all of these things are happening and you're struggling in your relationship uh, and why you're you're struggling with medical school in general, um, just the workload. Uh, the bad news is it's not just depression and anxiety. It's something probably a little bit worse. And I was like, okay like what's the diagnosis and she's like you have borderline personality disorder and in that moment in time I was like yeah I don't know what that is <laughs> what what is that like uh it sounds bad and she's like we'll work on it and we'll talk about it next visit and start talking about a treatment plan and what we're gonna do and I'm like okay so what does every good person do you before Googled they come it. to the doctor when they think something's wrong with the... I Googled it. Bad, bad, bad plan. Yeah. Bad plan. So all of that stuff that you talked about in your previous episode, I'm like Googling all of this and I'm like, oh my God, my husband, actually at that time, fiance, my fiance is going to leave me. I am batshit <laughs> crazy. They have nothing but bad things to say about these people. These people are, like, certifiably should be in the nut house. (laughs) I'm one of those people. I can't be a doctor. 
I can't be a doc. I can't be a doctor with this. I was like, what do I do? What do I do? I don't know what I do. Cause she didn't tell me what the treatment plan was yet. And I didn't see her until the next week. So I like tell my husband, fiance, and he Googles it and he's like, <laughs> oh, hey, God. that's you. And I'm like, and I'm like, what do you mean that's me? He's like, you are this person. He's like, you are really ugly when you're mad. And I'm like, he's like, I wouldn't even call it mad. He's like, you're like a hurricane. You just destroy everything in your path. And I'm like, that's not cute. Like, let's never call me hurricane again. Hurricane galaxy doesn't exist. Okay. Well, we're getting so, there, um, you know, like we're on, we're on the Greek numbers now we're on Delta. So I think we'll probably just start using words I know. now. So, you know, we don't know. <laughs> Celestial bodies. <laughs> we we're... don't know. <laughs> Hurricane Odin, <laughs> Hurricane Jupiter. Um, um, and he was like, that is you. So I want you guys to like rein it in for a second, like whoever's listening. So you hear this entire story and you're, you know, and you may be thinking about like, any sort of lecture that you got on borderline you're ho- and you're like holy crap you're that person and it's like yeah i mm-hmm. was that person but what i also want you to know is there's probably someone in your life that you know that has borderline personality disorder and you may or may not know it because uh as i tell a lot of my patients that i think probably have cluster B traits or borderline personality disorder. Of course, I, as a primary care physician, will not make that diagnosis, but I will send them to someone that will. And then, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> um, you know, you don't get borderline by, by being unintelligent. You don't develop these complex maladaptive coping mechanisms like uh, hiding it and stuffing it down and these systems of manipulation and devaluation, uh, and basically compulsive lying without having some sort of intelligence. I just tell people like, if you were below average intelligence, you just become violent. Like you just, for sure, just beat the shit out of people, which I did in high school, which I did in high school (laughs) too, but that's a side story. Um, but you know, but the manipulation piece is I never got in trouble for it because Galaxy would never do that. Galaxy is a straight-A student. Like, Galaxy's in the show choir. Galaxy is, you know, like, model representative of this <laughs> high school. Joke's on you, vice principal, superintendent, everyone. Anyway, so, but the people who feel it the most when someone has borderline are the people that are closest to them so it's actually to be honest really easy to hide other people in your outer spheres you know other friends may have an inkling like something's not quite right here um then other students like say in your medical school class they might be like ah she's a little she's a little anxious or you know and then a greater sphere like hey she's a really good student like she does a lot of extracurriculars and participates with the homeless shelter and all this like she's pretty awesome people don't realize but the person who felt the full weight of that Mm -hmm. was phil and um you know, and he knew, and he wasn't having it anymore after uh, three years of this. And it just exponentially got worse the uh, harder my life got and going through medical education. So all of our 
lectures were oh, required. Um, we weren't allowed to stream a whole lot of things, and there were some things that were required in the middle of the day. And I needed to get to my appointments. I also did uh, started dialectical behavioral therapy, which was another two hours on top of my yeah. weekly individual appointments. So how was I supposed to do this in medical school? I went to um, the uh, like student advisor, counselor, whatever for my class, who happened to be a licensed social worker and a PsyD. And I felt confident in being able to tell her my, uh, you know, my diagnosis and like what was going on with me because I needed permission to be able to go to these appointments. And I just remember her saying, you do not tell that to anyone. You do not tell that to any students. You do not tell that to anyone else who works in this medical school. They will use it against you. They, they will discriminate against you. Um, they can't know. You have a chronic medical condition yes. that you have to go to appointments every week, and I will sign off on this, and that is the end of that. But you say nothing to anyone. And I'm like, excuse me, what? <laughs> I'm like, this is a medical condition. She's like, this is a highly stigmatized mental health condition. I'm like, we're doctors. She's like, no, you, you don't understand. They you had your reason. moment. That was the first time you you saw what this field actually yeah. is and, and what, how something you learn about, yeah. you know, now you're not allowed to say that you have it. It's, it was, uh, yeah. it was striking. It was, um, it was terrifying. I mean, she said to me, anything that even seems a little out of line that would go unnoticed Without this information, they will find a reason to make it a big deal, and they will try to blame it on your mental illness, and this will not go well for you. And I'm like, because I I grew up believing through my own learning and my friends that mental health was like physical health, uh, and that was the first time I learned that in the medical field that yeah. is so, not the case. So, first of all, you learn about it in medical school, and psychiatrists are medical doctors. So, that's kind of how you can look at it. I mean, anybody can look at it. But then a second question I had for you, Gal, was would you give the same advice? How, what would you say to a medical student who knowing what you, you know now level. Yeah. yeah exactly would you give the same advice or how would you word it I mean she was pretty forceful but I came to just contrasting what I might say compared to what my advisor said at the time she was pretty forceful but uh, getting to know her better she always had my back she protected me at any cost unfortunately what I know now um I would probably give the same advice a little bit more kindly uh, because of what I ended up experiencing in my first residency. Um, because I got through my first two years of medical school and I didn't say anything about it. And uh, I pretty much gave up on that dream of ever getting honors in XYZ because I decided that knowing the material to the level that I felt I needed to know material, that I was satisfied that I understood it, and as long as I passed the test written by PhDs, <laughs> of all things, um, you know, 
was satisfactory. Yeah. P equals MD, right? We had pass and we had honors and we had fail. And I decided that working on my relationship with my husband and working on my mental health was more important than and trying what a to get honors. Because that's a re- Yeah. What a relief. You, you could only get honors in my class if you were like in one standard or two standard devia- deviations away yeah. from the bean. So. Yeah. I'm, and I have to say too percent. that I also, you know, I understand what you felt for sure when your psychologist said that, or I guess the the psychologist who had a role in the medical school said that. But unfortunately, I was going to say right off the bat, I would have to give the same advice to someone because, you know, all of us here are very aware of how ass backwards the medical system is and how stigmatized mental health conditions are to the point where, you know, I know many doctors that would like to be open about struggling with anxiety or depression even, which are very basic things and so many people struggle with and they they don't Mm -hmm. feel, they feel that it will be used against them. And in many cases, these things do get used against people. Yeah. Uh, We'll get there. Can you, we will before you go on, I I have to ask you, tell us a little more about like what you're what your DBT experience consisted of? Oh my gosh, yes. So um, (laughs) I do remember my psychologist, she was like, you've really got to buy into this because it's going to be a lot of wacky acronyms. And she was like, it's Mm going to seem beneath you. She's like, it's going to almost seem like it's, it's undermining your intelligence to like have to learn this. She's like, but I swear to God it works. And she said, this is first Mm -hmm. line. You, you have to, you have to do it. So I did it. And I was like, I had my little notepad. I was taking notes. I got the worksheets. I bought the book. Like I did the whole nine. My husband and I, um, when I was in medical school, he was a uh, substitute teacher. We lived off $15,000 a year and a hundred dollars of that a month was Mm -hmm. going towards my mental health costs. And I mean, it changed my life. Um, I cannot say uh, enough good things about dialectical behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. You do have to buy in. Some of it does sound really silly, but, you know, when you're talking about it in class, it you know, and for those of you who don't know, this is not like CBT. Uh, DBT especially is group DBT. This is not a process situation. This is learning skills in bite-sized pieces, in tangible pieces of very esoteric concepts, breaking them down into tangible bite-sized pieces that you can practice in your everyday life to be able to manage your symptoms. Um, And, you know, the three tenets are, you know, that people with borderline have interpersonal chaos, distress intolerance, and total lack of emotion, emotional regulation. Like, so those are the three topics other than mindfulness that you touch on and they're like big blocks. So I completed dialectical behavioral therapy three times over the course of my four years of medical school. So even when I was doing clinical rotations, I still went to dialectical behavioral therapy. I still left. I still left in the middle of my day for clinical rotations on Mm -hmm. Wednesdays to see my psychologist on top of DBT. And it was a struggle. It was a huge struggle. A lot of attendings didn't understand it. They didn't like it. They, they wanted an explanation. 
and, and all they got was a slip of paper that said I was excused. Sometimes it would be in the middle of surgery on surgery rotation, and they weren't, they just were not having it. Sometimes living off $15,000 a year, sometimes I had to pay money to not even go to a session. Oh, God. And on top of it, did it did they retaliate it against you in your avows because of it? Um, yeah, a few times. I would say mostly on surgery rotation. I think the good news is the advisor worked directly under the dean of student affairs, and the dean of student affairs did not ask uh, further information of the advisor for my class because she had the most seniority. Um. So if the the advisor went to bat for me, the dean of student affairs would then also go to bat for me. So um, luckily they didn't use any of those in my uh, medical student performance evaluation. But I think you guys and the listeners can see how this is actually a lot of luck yeah. that this lined up mm-hmm. this way. Because a lot of medical schools, I mean, their first alternative was to be like, oh, you can't go during the middle of the week. Like, you have to do it on your off time. And I'm like, when am I off? I only get Sundays off. Like, like what psychologist sees people on Sundays? This is absolute insanity. And then my advisor realized, like, that is actually not a, yeah. a reasonable thing to ask of you. Um, but it was, I mean, it was really hard. I, I do remember that in my third year, I started being a little bit more vocal because... Um, I really did not like how some of the residents and physicians at my clinical site talked about patients who had mental health mm. issues. Um, and actually, to some of the co-residents and attendings, I actually revealed, because I was so angry at some of the things that they said, that, you know, I have borderline personality disorder, too, this thing, this entity, this highly stigmatizing thing that you are accusing this patient who you don't know of having when they could just really be sick and hurt and afraid and having, like, regression because they're on the trauma Mm -hmm. floor. Yeah. Seems reasonable. Um, And accusing them of having cluster B symptoms. And number one, it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Number two, that's highly stigmatizing to the patient. Number three, it's highly stigmatizing to me because there's so many worse things to have the borderline personality disorder. It's hard to believe, hard to believe for a lot of people out there, but there's so many worse things that are not actually treatable because they're so egocentric. Or, for example, disorganized mm. schizophrenia. Yeah. That's so yeah. hard. I My heart goes out to anyone with that. That's so hard to treat. That's so mm-hmm. hard to live with. There are way worse things, you know? And... um I just remember one day that an emergency department resident on the who was rotating through the trauma service said, you've been misdiagnosed. And I'm like, excuse me, what? This had been two years of me going to dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, he's like, you've been misdiagnosed. There's no way you could be in medical school and have borderline personality disorder. Those people are not functional. There's no way that you could be in a relationship for four years, a stable relationship for four years, go to medical school and have borderline and have been diagnosed in medical school. That's upsetting. No possible way. For many reasons, but mostly because, and I know that it's emergency, they don't ever really have to deal with like the long-term treatment, but 
that's almost like you are you are successful and you're still in medical school you're still in your relationship because of this therapy and almost saying you know there's I don't he almost didn't believe he or she didn't believe there was a way you could get better which is actually it's very alarming which is it's very alarming so the expectation that that because I'm successful, that proves I can't have it. Don't you want these people to get better? It was so mm. crazy to me. Um, even even in my second year of medical school, by this time I knew, I mean, the second year of medical school, because I was diagnosed my first year in November, I knew that it was highly stigmatized. Our personality disorder lecture by the head of psychiatry with one of the hospital systems that we, uh, um, you know, rotated through, um, when he got to borderline personality disorder, he's like, so borderline personality disorder. He was using, using DSM for TR. Anyway, he's like, these are the patients that you hate. That was the first thing he said. I'm just sitting there like, okay, ready oh, for this. God. What an intro. Yeah. He, yeah. He's like, these are the patients that are going to wait for you outside of clinic who are going to try to divide you and your nursing staff who are going to not have great boundaries, make demands of you that you can't fulfill and just won't adhere to the treatment plan, even though they want you to do something. And none of the other personality disorders other than antisocial personality disorder got an I, intro like that. Yeah, I hate the none serial of the other killers, ones. I would say the most, you know. <laughs> I don't think, you know what I mean? And, like, I mean, <laughs> honestly, though, he's sort of uh, not giving borderlines the credit they should be because a lot of them can be incredibly charming when they're splitting against you in a positive way and you can actually be those can be everybody's favorite patients just as much so he was really it's only talking about like a very low level functioning you know a lot of him as a (laughs) as a provider if they hate him if they're he's doing something wrong if this is how people are acting but what's it called oh my god i can't believe i don't remember this yeah, projection. projection. I mean, that's no. that's the definition <laughs> of projection. He feels yes. that way because of the patient. That's a great. That's a psych lesson. That's so, what you're done. <laughs> well, we can't call it counter transference. would be I'm actually sorry. how we refer to those things. I'm sorry. Yes, he had a lot of he had a lot of a lot of negative counter transference towards borderlines, which is fine. Sometimes I do too. Depends on the patient. A lot of borderline patients in my clinic somehow. Yeah, um, I, I think it's very person person dependent. I don't like to make broad generalizations <laughs> because there's so many different factors in each individual that I can't be like someone like this always makes me feel like this. No, they can make me feel. It's going to be very no. person dependent. There are some borderlines that I'm really drawn in yes. by, and there's some that are you know nasty from the moment you meet them, and and it can be it, it can be real extremes. And they're all on different, um, you know, yes, they're all on different for sure. of their journey. They, you could have how many different combinations? I don't even remember the permutation at this point, but how many combinations of those it's nine in- symptoms? Crazy. I don't even know. So <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Like, long story short, that's the intro I get in that lecture. And I start, like, without realizing it, I'm laughing. I'm laughing out loud. Like, I, I, I mean... And he's like, we all have someone in the, our life like this, whether it's a patient or a parent or a cousin or whatever. And he pointed at me because I was laughing. And he's like, 
you must have someone in your life that has borderline. He's like, and they drive you crazy, right? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> they do. And Because like, what else can you say? You can't be like, oh, I'm laughing because I, I have this thing and you're saying such because, terrible things about me yeah. while I'm right here. <laughs> I know, while I'm trying to learn about the other personality disorders that I didn't know existed, I was just like, holy <laughs> hell, kill me now. Like, my friend... So I'm surrounded by my friends in this little pod, like, on the right side of the auditorium, and they're just like, oh, dear God, she's going to blow her stack. Like, she's going to lose it after this lecture. I did. Um, (laughs) I won't even lie about that. So that's just, like, some examples of just medical school. Um, Fast forward, applying to residency. Um, You know, I really... Uh, I really didn't think that I was going to be a good candidate for my specialty um, just because I've, you know, they because I only went for the past. A lot of uh, people in my medical school said that I was kind of dumb. <laughs> oh, yeah, because someone who makes it through medical school passing is dumb. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I was right there with you in the uh, in was, the like just pass crowd and lower scores, and I think I I led the bottom <laughs> quartile is where I would put my standing. And guess what? I think I'm smart as oh fuck, God. and I think the same of you. So, <laughs> well, thank you so much. Oh, we get yes, to we do on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> whole holy fuck! Like those were only two examples of like the. <sighs> Sorry, ADHD, but like two examples of being invalidated. I can only I can only name like 18 billion. I don't I don't even remember all of them now about when I would be vocal. So I was very vocal like third and fourth year because I was like, you can't do anything to me because if you discriminate against me, whatever, my Mm -hmm. advisor's on my side. Like, so that's not going to get put in my medical student performance evaluation couldn't believe it so because rewind or fast forward whatever go to like residency didn't realize that I was a competitive candidate but I did all of these like extracurriculars I started helped start an organization called street medicine Detroit I did a huge study for them and blah 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 published blah 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 um And I was getting, like, interviews to, like, Mayo and Duke, and everyone said, you connect so well with your patients. You're just absolutely, you know, wonderful, but you're just not that bright. And I'm like, thumbs up, cool. Well, I got got some pretty good interviews, so I'm just going to, (laughs) like, screw you on that one. Um, So I think I made it through all of this. I got through all this. I'm living the high life. I got married six days before I moved halfway across the country to my residency with my husband. He didn't have a job yet. Just me and my residency. And I remember distinctly in that residency interview because I didn't think I was going to get an interview there, and they actually uh, called me off their wait list. Um, I literally told the program director that I had borderline personality disorder. Um, and like, yeah, I'm fully treated. I am very big into mental health. It's huge to me. And I really, you know, I really, you know, my, my resume spoke for itself. My test scores spoke for themselves. Um, and I felt so dumb because I was like, oh, it ended up being my favorite, but Mm -hmm. I ranked them one anyway. I get in, I get in. 
Um, and I'm a very bubbly, cheerful person most of the time. Um, and I remember my first time being on inpatient. I had a patient that had just come out of that ICU that was on TPN, almost lost their life. Like, just unbelievable things that this woman had gotten through. Just unbelievable things. Um, and I go in and I'm just like, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Like, I'm here at the end of your journey, just meeting you, but I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy you made it through all this and I'm on rounds. My attending pulled me aside after my first time on inpatient uh, August 1st and said, you know, you could make septic shock sound like a good thing with how bubbly you are, and that's not a good thing. He's like, learn to read the tone of the room. He's like, we don't talk about serious things like that. The patient was totally into it. The patient was a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's how you interact with teenagers. You know. Anyway, long and short of it, um, that evaluation destroyed me. Um, the written evaluation uh, said that, get this, t- totally confusing, right, to a borderline person exceptionally intelligent, one of the smartest interns I've ever met as far as treatment plans and medical knowledge, does not interact appropriately with patients, does not communicate well with families. So you can see why even a treated borderline, that would totally turn me on my head because I was told I was stupid, but excellent with my patients, quote, bedside manner. So I started like having an identity crisis. And that was a super hard month for me because that attending was my attending for the entire month. It sucked. Um, And it just, that evaluation followed me every single month. Um, People were very uh, verbally uh, not not nice at that residency. Um, And finally, I couldn't take it anymore. I had in endocrine clinic of all things got dressed down for an attending for having like a a pep talk with a patient in front of her mom about her body image because apparently that's not appropriate to do during a diabetes one visit and that I wasted her time and da 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 awful 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 um in front of the nurses and uh I just decided after that day after like abuse after abuse after abuse, um, that I was not fit to be a doctor, and that was the second time that I attempted suicide. I mean, it, it just, it was every, it was every month, um, you know, DFS let a baby go home on Well Baby with a mom who had all her children taken away actively using amphetamines, and I said to my Uh, attending at that time, you know, I really don't have a lot of trust in DFS from my personal experience. Um, She wrote me up for that because she said I was oversharing and that me talking about some of the things in my childhood um, made her uncomfortable. Um, I had another resident at one point ask me, because I'm very direct, like very, very, very direct. I do not lie. I will tell you this straight, honest-to-God truth. Um, And I don't really sugarcoat things. Uh, Which I guess in medicine is not cool? Question mark, smiley face, (laughs) if you're a woman. R.I.P. R.I.P. S.O.S. Definitely bossy, (laughs) not the boss. 
aggressive, not yep. assertive. I don't know. Yeah, that's all the time. Either you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, uh, my older sister attempted suicide, and I was crying at the workstation, and my attending like asked me about it, and. Um, I said my sister just attempted suicide. I just don't know what to do right now, but obviously I can't leave work. I got written wow. for that for oversharing, that that made that that attending uncomfortable. Um, another resident asked me when I said, oh, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Like, I'm deaf in my right ear mostly. And he was like, oh, really? Why? And I'm like, well, my dad hit me and I was hit me in the side of the head with a brick when I was five and I lost my hearing. And um, that was the truth. And uh, he complained that wow. that he asked why. And I was told, I was told by my assistant program director that I should have just <gasps> thought it was an accident or something. That I shouldn't be sharing those details because that those details make people uncomfortable. Well, you know, you shouldn't go into medicine if that type of stuff makes you uncomfortable, and that's what I have to yeah. say to that. So, if a patient were to tell him that, he would just not. He what is he going to go? He probably kid. consults psych immediately because, dear God, he can't handle someone Pre- being direct. And, and they <laughs> clearly need to be evaluated by a psychiatrist urgently. And there are plenty of those types in medicine. I can certainly verify that. Yeah, I had a, another... Um I had another resident. We had a, a transgender patient. These are just some of the things that happened. Like, even when I was a senior uh, resident in this residency, had a uh, transgender uh, patient show up on my team and um, was non-binary. And I gave my... Because a lot of my friends, my close friends, are non-binary, actually. So, yeah, that is just a handful of things that happened before I attempted suicide in the endocrine rotation. I remember waking up thinking that I had uh, OD'd. At this point, I'm, like, on SSRI and bus bar and stuff. Um, My head is splitting, and there's, like, this horrible screeching noise. Um, It was my pager (laughs) asking me. uh, I remember calling my chief resident after calling the suicide hotline and getting myself together a little bit. I was not together. Um, and he just, like, didn't know what to do with me. I was like, okay, um, I guess I'll be at work by the time didactic start. And he's like, yeah, um, you know, your pro, you know, program director wants to talk to you in his office, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, not really hearing a whole lot. Things aren't really making sense. I got a speeding ticket on the way, uh, to work, um, you know, I was crying and stuff, so I, the police officer followed me all the way to work. I get in there, and I just remember um, being in my program director's office, and he's like, yeah, um, the attending that you were supposed to work with today, the same one from the day before, um, was really worried about you because the last time someone didn't show up to work, it was a medical student, and they committed suicide. And I'm like, LOL, smiley face. I explained to him, that's exactly why I wasn't at work. And I'm like, maybe it's because she's so freaking abusive, <laughs> number one. Yeah. Um, but no, even after that instance, she still worked with students and residents. Um, so I explained everything. It was like a whirlwind. I'm like, am I going to lose my job? I don't know what the rules are for residency. I don't know X, Y, Z. 
I just remember signing a bunch of forms and that I was on an improvement plan and uh, they wanted me to be screened by someone from employee professionalism and well-being <laughs> um, who was a PsyD and somehow got myself talked out of um, going to a hospital that I was fine. I, you know, told them that I was only thinking about it, even though I was like very unwell and probably having some signs of serotonin syndrome, but I didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and I signed releases of information and part of my improvement plan that I signed was that I needed to, uh, start seeing a psychologist and a psychiatrist instead of just a primary, instead of a primary to manage my medications. So, um, they gave me the weekend and then I immediately went back to work, uh, you know, the Monday following. So I happened on a Friday on a rotation where I was working 80 to 90 to 100 hours a week. And then got called into my program director's office um, two months later as, as to why I had not started seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist yet. <laughs> because when did I have time? Yeah. But they tried to pull records through the release of information and had nothing. So that's how they knew that I wasn't going anywhere. Uh, is that even legal? That's what I would like to know. And I don't even, I don't even know. So it, I've eventually did find a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Um, I really liked my psychiatrist. Really, really liked her. Psychologist, not so much. Uh, but I was like, whatever, go through the motions. My, my therapy with my psychiatrist is really good. Whatever, go through the motions. Um, fast mm -hmm. forward to eight months after attempting, um, and I am successfully, like, doing my treatment plan. Um, my understanding of the release of information or how they presented it to me was just to make sure I was going to appointments. That actually ended up not being the case. They had access to everything that we spoke about. So... They ended up finding out that I had post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder. Granted, oh my god, the PD should have realized that because I said it in my interview. But like, whatever, he didn't remember. Um, doesn't matter. Um, so they ended up finding that out, and then every time that I had a normal resident frustration, interaction with a nurse, or just you know how you complain in the workroom sometimes, yeah. Yes, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, that was because of my mental illnesses and not just because of being a resident. Um, wow. I got called into my program director's office. Uh, he was demanding why did I yell at a clerk at one of our sister hospitals in the NICU. It never happened. He tried mm -hmm. to get me to admit to it six ways to Sunday, and I wouldn't. Um, I ended up failing a rotation uh, for being too independent in one of the ICUs, uh, no one said anything to me all month. Of course, we weren't following ACGME, you know, uh, hours guidelines. Um, and it was a horrible rotation where you would work five days of days and then you would get 24 hours off. So you'd get done with work at 5 p.m. And then you would go to nights at 5 p.m. the next day because according to ACGME, 24 continuous hours is a day off. It's ridiculous. It's one of the worst policies. Yeah, so um, so you would do that five times in one month. You would go from days to nights, days to nights, days to nights. 
these nights. Oh, God. Um, yeah, so they complained that I was too autonomous, and I didn't find out that I failed the rotation until a month later, the day before I was supposed to become a second year. And, like, the day before July 1st, I got a page saying that I needed to come to the program director's office. Uh, had no warning, totally unannounced, um, that I had failed the rotation. Had never gotten any feedback. They didn't release my... Um, I knew something was up because they didn't release my evaluation to me when they have released everyone else's evaluation. So I knew something was up, but I didn't know quite what since people had been telling me I was doing a decent job. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, basically I decided a probation contract and these were the steps that I needed to remediate and I needed to successfully redo the rotation that my entire year two schedule would be changed and that I was not a second year and I would not be getting a pay increase until I successfully repeated this rotation. Um, and then he had called my psychologist and made an appointment for me, um, to make sure that I was quote, okay with this. And I, <laughs> and I said, you know, really it's, um, rush hour traffic. I really don't want to drive 45 minutes out of my way. I want to be with my husband. Like, this is obviously very shocking. Um, that I'm not going to be a senior resident. I was supposed to start senioring the next day. And he said, well, it's actually part of this thing that you signed for your probation, and it's not really optional. You have to go. And I'm like, okay. So I went, and I fired that psychologist on the spot for, Good. for agreeing to that. I was so upset. And uh, yeah. I was being gaslit. She told me I was being unreasonable and that this was for my well-being. And I... I I just, I felt crazy and I felt like what is going on that <sighs> I, I, I just, I still to this day, I don't know what to make of that, but everything went downhill from there. Um, everything got blamed on my mental illnesses. Um, my program director started having placed people who were on the um, promotion committee, like residents that were on the promotions committee and attendings that were on the promotions committee to be my attendings and my co-residents on my rotations with me. I had someone watching me at all times, unbeknownst to Horrible. me, unbeknownst to me until a few months after that started. Um, and uh, finally, I, I had had enough of it as a second year in the middle of the year. And I started speaking out about what the program director was doing to me. It was part of my uh, remediation contract that I would go to these appointments, but then they never actually allowed me to go to those appointments. Like it was supposed to be a secret kept from the other attendings so that it would just be doctor's appointments. Well, then the attendings wouldn't agree to let me go to these doctor's appointments. So then I wasn't going to them. So I was in violation of my contract, but it, do you see how none of this makes sense? Yeah. None of it makes sense. Yeah. It's totally counterintuitive. And I'm at this point paying $100 out of pocket every time I miss an appointment. <laughs> and it's weekly. Um, and my, uh, my, my new psychologist, who was wonderful, by the way, um, actually started documenting when they wouldn't find me coverage or allow me to go to the appointments which was clever of her, and we'll get to why that was. So fast forward, my attending, or my program director, put me on six months straight of inpatient for my second, oh, half, second half of the year, and I finally cracked um, the fifth month, May. I finally cracked. 
Um, and I lost my temper in the workroom. I was very, I was close to suicidal. I was barely eating. I was going to work and then I was coming home and then I was sleeping. I was working 70 to 90 hours a week. And, um, I mean, it wasn't, uh, uncommon for people on 28 hour call to work 30, 32 hours there. Um, so, um, it, finally lost my temper and I remember the exact phrase that got me fired. Uh, I said, (laughs) after getting an infant from the emergency department, I said, uh, (laughs) I can't believe the emergency department left me this flaming pile of dog shit on my doorstep and I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to do with it because they didn't follow standard of care. Like they didn't, all they did was get the blood cultures. They didn't get the urine cultures and they didn't do a tap. And she sat in the emergency department for eight hours and it came Mm -hmm. and the mission came right at shift change and I let my interns go. So I was pissed and apparently an attending was in the resident lounge after hours, reported me, was called into my program director's office for the final time and told that I was placed on administrative leave. I admitted at that time that I was suicidal and that I'd been working too much um, again. And I think you can just see how all of these compound stressors came together. Um, Mm -hmm. The program didn't communicate with me for two weeks after that. Finally, I got called in on a Monday, two weeks later, um, to my program director's office. I got an email saying, be there at 1030. I showed up. I was terminated for uh, basically making clinical errors that were never documented in any of my evaluations. All of my evaluations were good, even the one where I failed, hilariously. Um, And uh, that... My termination letter very pointedly said that uh, I was a danger to myself and my patients because of my mental illnesses. So fucked up. That's all I have to say, (laughs) that that is incredibly fucked up. And um, they made it very clear that they would not help me find a new position and uh, that if they had anything to do with it, I would never practice medicine again. Uh, Enter my very long battle of about a month where I fought with them, asked for my due process. Um, it w- I mean, it was awful. Um, as you guys may or may not know, when you ask for due process, when you're being asked to leave a residency, a non-renewal of a contract, involuntary departure, termination, voluntary departure, you have the ability for due process. You have the ability to have a lawyer there. The ACGME puts in a provision that everyone has to have this institutional review board. Um, it's always guilty until proven innocent. You have, the burden of guilt is on the uh, defendant. It's not, it's not innocent until proven guilty. So how was I to say that I did not swear and be unprofessional in the workroom when I had already admitted it in an at-will state where no mm-hmm. resident unions can exist? It's an at-will state. So they can fire me for anything. They can fire me for wearing a red shirt. They don't have to have a reason. So how am I supposed to defend against that? You can't. It was a foolproof plan to get rid of me. Um, I ended up uh, threatening to sue the hospital system for violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, enter in my psychologist who had documented all the times they didn't let me leave. Mm -hmm. And they finally caved and allowed me to have voluntary departure with all my credits. (sighs) And I just think that's unfortunately 
an example and we could get into so many layers of this like not so beyond mental health like how the laws are set up against resident physicians to they protect abusive systems yeah i mean and that's and that's the thing all of the alphabets do nothing to protect residents and if anything do things to protect the institutions yeah um and i mean are we we're students when it uh benefits the institutions we're workers when it benefits the institutions um Mm -hmm. you know it's that could be a whole nother a whole another episode, episode, a whole another episode, especially with like now disaster capitalism on top of the pandemic. On yes, top of Im- because <sighs> it plays into all of your story, like everything. And we should have another episode at some point about that. We should. But. <laughs> we should. So um, just all of that happened. What I will tell you is the day that I got terminated, um, it came as quite a shock. I actually could not believe for that, in that moment that I was terminated, I didn't register. Um, But uh, what I will say is, um, I went home, and uh, on my way home, I'm like bawling, and I call my husband, and he calls out of work early, and uh, I just remember getting home, and like, I can't believe that happened, but at the same point in time, I was almost giddy, like relieved, like I never have to go back to that place again, even though I knew this was just going to be just a fucking shit show. Like my life yeah. is on the line. Yeah. My life is on the line. My livelihood, like might as well get divorced from my husband and be homeless because they're going to garnish my wages and everything once I default on my student loans. Like I knew that I was in mm-hmm. deep shit. But I remember my husband saying, like, I'm so glad you don't have to go back there any, anymore because I thought your residency was going to kill you. I thought for sure that you were going to attempt again and be successful because I felt like I lost my wife during the last six months. Can we shout out Phil for being a beautiful example of a partner with a secure attachment? Thank you, because <laughs> I am avoidant, whatever that other one is, the other A. <laughs> Avoidant. You're avoidant ambivalent or like the ambivalent anxious, like yeah, the combo I, one. I'm the combo one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Phil and his stable attachment coming through in the clutch. Enter in my new residency. My old my old program director did everything he could to make sure that I did not get into my new residency, including attempting successfully attempting to uh, go against my separation agreement, which he did. He totally did not follow the rules of the separation agreement where he was only supposed to stick to what was written. My evaluations, all my evaluations were good. Um, I, I got uh, my new residency. I told my new program director in my interview everything. And uh, I, got, I got the only internal medicine pediatric spot in the country available at that time. Which speaks volumes to, like, the fact when someone sees someone how they should, not through this lens of stigmatization or however you would call it, you know? The story doesn't end there. Um, I was able to obtain my license uh, to get to this new residency program, found out later that... uh, what is believed, although we, we can't corroborate this 100%, that my ex-program director filed a complaint with the state that I worked in, the same state that I was working in, um, at, with my new residency, that I was unfit 
to practice medicine because of my mental illnesses, and I actually had to go before the board to um, uh, defend why I should have a temporary license and why I should be in residency, even though I had successfully completed uh, eight months of my new residency. Wow. My program director went with me, my lawyer went with me, and my husband went with me. Um, I did not realize this at the time because I was so wrapped up in, like, just trying to explain. Uh, my program director said, I don't think you noticed, but um, the women on the board were, some of them were actually tearing up with your testimony. When they asked my program director to speak, my new one, she said, I've been the program director of this residency for eight years, and... Galaxy is one of the top three residents I've ever had in my program in those eight years. And I, I am not sure why we're here today, but, um, you know, I 100% support her being in my program and I 100% support her. And, um, she said, I can't say enough good things about her. And she went on to say how she thought that my mental illness has actually made me a better physician and that I provided excellent mental health care when other physicians and other patients didn't qualify to go to our psychiatry clinic. And I don't know, she just said all these wonderful things. Um, but that first sentence, I mean, it changed my life. It, it literally, that was like the moment of time, the moment in my life where I was like, I know that I'm accepted and I'm okay because I would literally do anything for this woman. She saved my life. She saved my livelihood. I mean, I was facing financial ruin, career destruction, probably having to divorce my husband, potentially losing my house, maybe living with his parents for the rest of our lives. Like we did not know what we were gonna do. I mean, he's a teacher for God's sakes. <laughs> I have to comment that, like, you know, she's the only person who really treated you how you would hope a physician would treat someone else. And it's also the first person in a position of power where you're referring to them by she pronouns and not he pronouns. Yeah. Which is something else I can't help but point out. Yeah, it's... uh she's she's amazing what i will tell you is that at my new institution i have still been a huge advocate for mental health i felt very uh confident in my ability to talk about my prior experiences where my previous program was um which many people know because it's considered a prestigious program um and um i have had a lot of positive responses from people of all genders. Where I am currently at now is probably, it's not perfect. No residency is perfect. We've talked about this with RPR, that it's, yeah. it's, the system is abusive in its core, but if you could be at one of the best places, my residency program and all of the residency programs and the residents that I've seen other than a couple at this institution, I mean, it is unbelievable how much different the people were there. Um, and mm -hmm. I am touted for not only being smart, like I was at my first residency, but also an excellent communicator, which I was in medical school. It's like, and I went through all this treatment. What you don't know is that um, 
my previous psychologist at my previous residency noticed that I had pretty severe PTSD too, that I had PTSD from my childhood. I had PTSD from what was happening to me in residency. So I started EMDR as well. And I mm-hmm. continue to do EMDR. Um, do you want me to explain what EMDR is or do you yeah, want no, to do Yeah, no, you explain home? EMDR because I, I... Well, honestly, I probably don't know it as well as you, but it's a special type of therapy. And as far as I know, it involves eye movements and a lot of people with PTSD say it really helped them with their trauma. So I don't know if you have something to add. So it's very helpful with post-traumatic stress disorder in the fact that you really focus on uh, memories. Uh, Usually memories before the age of 11 have the most impact on us, but any really uh, traumatic, recurrent traumatic complex trauma can be processed in this way. And then you go through your past, get through those touchstone memories, as they call them, reprocess those, desensitize to those, and then get to a point where you can process things that are triggering currently that bring you back to those things. And then you can go and process things that are coming up, upcoming. Like for me, I'm worried, like, is my attending job going to be at a place that's as supportive where I am now? I think that it's going to be, yes. but that's kind of triggering mm-hmm. for me. Um, you know, I, I still am kind of working through the things that have happened at my previous program. Um, because I felt like I had to be a different person every single day of my life, and I just couldn't do it. You can't do it for 18 hours a day. You just can't do it. It was exhausting, and I was made to feel that I was unfit to be a physician. I mean, what I will tell you, the outcome of the board, typically the state board, when you have a hearing, they take four to six weeks to uh, process uh, what they talked about. They issued my license on the spot that day. Wow. That's like actually really hopeful and nice. Yeah. They, they, the moderator came out. My program director was like, oh God, I didn't think it was going to be that long. We might not be able to pay you because you can't practice without a license. But she's like, we'll work on that. Uh, She's like, we'll work on that. We don't need to worry about that right now. And the moderator comes out and says, can you hold on for a second? And I'm like, oh God, oh God, oh God, please no. He's like, the the chairwoman of the board wants to speak to you. And I'm like, no. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds terrible. She comes out and she said, you are a testament to how physicians with mental health or mental illness should handle their mental illness. And I'm giving you your license on the spot today. The chairwoman of the board. And I'm like, she's like, you are exemplary. Most of the time when we interview residents and things like this has happened and they've left a residency or even a physician has left a different organization, we ask them how they're handling their mental health and they say, I run. She's like, you have had a comprehensive treatment plan and you stick to that treatment plan. And she's like, it's like any other illness and you are treating it that way. And that is what I want for our physicians in this state. And I'm really proud of you. And I'm like, what just happened to you? yeah it was a huge victory um so that whole day moving forward I've now felt very empowered so I'm galaxy I have major depression generalized anxiety disorder complex post-traumatic stress disorder borderline personality disorder eating disorder not otherwise specified and certain other social anxieties I am on Lamictal Lexapro and Bospar and I'm living my best life I've been happily with the same person for 10 years. I'm a successful physician. I'm going to work for a residency. I will be considered, uh, if I perform well in my first year, to potentially be associate program director. 
I will continue RPR until I speak with my new jobs, uh, risk management to discuss how, what I can do moving forward that's in line with the institution and, you know, just all of those things. And uh, hopefully within the next 18 months, we will have the Resident Physician Civil Liberties Union. And RPR will be the resident advisement panel within the RCLU. I love your story so much. Thank you for sharing. And I just want to say, like, you know, we we connect for a lot of reasons. I don't have, you know, the same story as you and all of that. But I think sometimes, you know, when you've been through maybe not the best things in life, you tend to somehow be attracted to things that take on that not-so-great role in your life again. And I think even when someone, so if you've, like, grown up in chaos, I think you're always, in some degree, going to be attracted to it. But the ability to be on the end of the person making things better for everyone else is, like, the ultimate goal. It is. And right? Um, my husband, of course, has had a lot of fears about the RCLU and RPR and all of this stuff. And even coming on here as Galaxies, like, you have a very immediately recognizable voice. He's like, I'm so nervous. He was the one that wanted me to speak to risk management first. Um, mm -hmm. Because he's like, we're so close to the end. Like, oh, my God, if something were to happen. But my program director, my now program director, I talked to her about the pods that I wanted to go on and she was 100% supportive, 100% supportive. Yeah. I, I have to say I did like somehow I have a friend on Instagram and she goes to your program director as her primary care and said they were just like the best physician ever. She, and I just have to throw that in there. She is. She is who I desire to be. Like she, yeah. I want to be a program director like her. Like, my first program director is the one that inspired me to go into graduate medical education and to go into residency. And I'm going to write that on my freaking graduation announcement to him that he is the one who inspired me by being the example of everything I don't want to be. Yeah. But she is the one who has carried me through and kept this dream alive because she is everything I want to be. And hopefully I can be more... And hopefully, you know, this winding road in life. We don't know what's going to happen with the RCLU. We do know that Queen Bee is totally on board to start it as well. And we have a bunch of collaborators as well that are on board. Um, hopefully we'll have 501c3 status or something. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But, but it is a lifetime dream. The RCLU is going to happen. And hopefully we'll be, when I'm 80 and almost dead, the <laughs> foremost lobbying uh, agency for resident physicians in the country. That's the goal. I'm never going to stop yeah. fighting for better resident conditions, and I'm never going to stop fighting for Black Lives Matter. We, I should say, me and Queen Bee and Sass. Sass has been a little MIA because she's an attending now. But, <laughs> um, but, and that's, that's my story. That's, you know, that's how I came to be the person that I am. Sass is actually the one who started RPR. She was a resident that went through a similar thing at a program in the same city I was in. And she said, you know, Galaxy, you are the example of overcoming all of these things, but you got a new residency. You're the example 
of what cannot be done. You're the miracle. You have to start this group and you have to get other people out of these positions. So far, RPR has helped five residents get new positions. Yeah. And the thing is, I think people are so ashamed when they're going through these situations that they might not necessarily share with people what's going on and seek out help. But, you know, assuming that you didn't do something horrendous, and oftentimes you're being made to feel that you did something horrendous even when you didn't, like, please reach out to RPR if you're struggling, if you're unhappy, even just unhappy in your program, and want to know what options there are. And obviously, I'm always available to chat about these things as well. But, you know, don't don't think that your story has to end or that it has to be horrible or anything like that. Like there are options. It, I mean, out it there. doesn't. It it really doesn't. I mean, we we've helped five residents get new positions at this point. Or um, you know, we have we have so much advice out there and I want this to be a message of hope. It really does yeah. feel like a miracle that all of this happened, but it was a lot yeah. of hard work and it wasn't just me. It was Phil. Mm-hmm. It was my lawyer. It was my other lawyer. It was my new program director. Um, we just got to find my program director somewhere else for you. And you can have borderline. You can have complex post-traumatic disorder, stress disorder. Excuse me. And that's just how I want to finish it is that you can have all of these things. I have two autoimmune conditions on top of this. You can have all of these things and be a successful physician. It was told to me my entire life that I wasn't good enough. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't capable enough. I was too outside the box, too direct, too bossy, uh, too this, too that, too bubbly. You heard that earlier. Um, Mm -hmm. Too mentally ill to be a physician. Well, I'm one of the top three physicians, I guess, residents that my program has ever seen, and I've presented at national conferences, and I'm published, and I'm married to the love of my life, and I'm the happiest I've ever been on three medications, and fuck the system for telling you you can't. (laughs) You can, you will, and we're here to help. Yeah, and I want this to be a message of hope to all residents, and also anyone who perhaps isn't even in the medical field, but you know, has been told by a physician or someone else that they have borderline personality disorder, that it's not like, it's not untreatable because unfortunately that is uh, a myth that gets propagated a lot and that there is hope as long as you want things to change. Yep. You got to buy in. And if you get someone that helps you to buy in, like Phil kind of threatened me with that little carrot, (laughs) that, that works too, but you got to buy in. It's worthwhile. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on today and listening to my story. I hope that wasn't boring for you guys, that long uh, it was winding tale. <laughs> not boring at all. Thank you so much for this consult, Galaxy, and I can't wait until we talk again. <laughs>